Christmas. It's wonderful to be in the Christmas season, isn't it? First day of Advent, and Tiffany is going to come up and light the Advent candle. So we are celebrating each of the Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. This is Tiffany and Tiffany. Okay, she needs a lighter that works. No pressure, Tiffany, you can do it. Yes. Now stay here. Okay, so in 2016, Tiffany came to begin worshiping at Living Truth. She is a, an amazing young lady. She's used her gifts here, been part of the young adult community. Um, you have a tremendous heart for the Lord. And there's a maturity and a solidness about your faith that I really have admired from afar, and we've talked over the years as well. So this is your last Sunday with us. And the reason is, is because she's engaged. So a very lucky, blessed young man named Jacob uh, has proposed to Tiffany. And she's getting married in April of next year. Yeah. But this man apparently has another church that he worships at since he was a child. And even though we would have him... Uh, repent and come to his first love. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, it sounds like it's a solid church and you've been there and you're going to get planted in there with your future husband, which is the way it should be. And we celebrate that, Tiffany. But I, I will say it's a bittersweet thing because we love you and we're going to miss you. I know you're going to pop in on Wednesday nights when you can. But we would just want to pray for you and just say we love you and we thank you for fellowshipping with us and partnering in the gospel. Lord, thank you for Tiffany and Jacob, her uh, future husband. I pray you would bless them beyond what they could uh, ask or imagine. I pray that the season ahead would be sweet. I pray that Tiffany would get um, firmly planted in this new fellowship. But most of all, she'll continue to walk with you, that her life will be used to glorify the king and the kingdom, that this would be a precious marriage with many wonderful years to come and that you'll use her life as you already have to continue to shine for you, Lord. Would you bless her richly? We're gonna miss her. We love her, and we ask that your blessing will go with her. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right. So last Sunday, if you were here, we also prayed for a little girl that was hit by a car, and uh, her name is Nile. Nile, I think that's the right way to say it. Anyway, um, she's Wanda's granddaughter. Wanda sits up here in the front row uh, each Sunday at first service, precious woman of God. And she told me that she talked to her son last night and that Nile is walking a little bit, moving a little bit, and doing well. So some of you had asked about her progress, and uh, I know the family is very grateful for your prayers. And she's doing well, and she's on the road to recovery. It's probably going to be a slow road. Uh, but she's recovering. So that is awesome news. And thank you for praying. We've been praying for Greg as well. Uh, and I would just encourage you to continue to pray for him. And we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to look at the tale, uh, a tale of two kings or two kingdoms. I have been 
praying about whether we should take a break from the verse-by-verse teaching in the Gospel of Matthew for the Christmas season. And I felt like the Lord would have us stay here. And so we're going to open the Advent season with the appropriate message of John the Baptist being beheaded. Yeah, so there you go. (laughs) But I will tell you this, uh, we'll do a special message on Christmas Eve, and we'll break from the Gospel of Matthew, but we have some tremendous content ahead, and it ties to who Jesus is, so rather than us going somewhere else to probably very familiar territory to many of you, we're going to stay right where we are. I think that's where the Holy Spirit has us today. So let's just, let's just pray one more time, and we'll jump into it. Father, thank you for the text in front of us. It's not an easy text, but it is uh, insightful in so many ways. It's, there's so many layers to this story, and this story is in the past, and it, there's some mature content here, Lord, but, but in the end, it, it's a story of two different mindsets, two worldviews. Uh, it's a story filled with decision about who we're going to follow who we trust, what we're going to live for, what's going to last. And, and the contrast will be uh, as about as sharp as it can be, Lord, especially between you and Herod, but John the Baptist and Herodias and all the players in this drama. We're going to see that there's really life and death decisions and more than that, eternal decisions that sit before us. And each time we gather our heart is that the uh, unsaved would be saved, that those who know you would grow and we become more like you, Lord, and those who may feel distant from you would be brought close. We pray that you are glorified both in the way we teach the text and the way we respond to it. So I pray that as we lay this time at your feet, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. We pick up the text in verse 1. At that time, and and the time in Matthew's Gospels when Jesus had just gone home to Nazareth, and remember, he did not receive a good reception. He was, they actually attempted to kill him. And Matthew says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, that's the first king of the story, heard news about Jesus. Now, who was Herod the Tetrarch? If you study your Bible, you you run into this uh, name Herod multiple times, and it all started with a man called Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled, really, Palestine, if you will, or uh, significant portions of Israel. And his rule, if memory serves, was about 37 B.C. to about 6 to 4 B.C., about 4 B.C., actually. And he was the ruler at the time Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If we reverse the tape way back to Matthew chapter 2, when we first started, he's the Herod that was on the throne when the wise men came and said, where will the king of the Jews be born? And then they looked up the prophecy in Micah and all of that. And one of the dastardly deeds that this Herod did among many terrible things that he did was upon feeling a threat to his throne, he had all the baby boys killed in Bethlehem, two years old and under. And we remember that prophecy that Rachel would not be comforted as she wept over her children. Now, Jesus and his parents were warned and he fled there with his parents until the death of Herod. Now, Herod died when Jesus was just a little boy. And after Herod's death, Jesus returned, and the kingdom was then split up among Herod's sons. From what I recall of reading a lot on Herod, he had about nine or ten different wives, and he had many, many different sons. 
And uh, there, was a, there was a saying that went around at this time that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be Herod's son. In fact, Herod uh, executed at least a couple of his sons and he killed a couple of his wives as well. This is a, this is a I think it's, they're saying amen, hallelujah, preach it. Yeah, that kind of thing. Anyway, now the, see where it says Herod the Tetrarch. He was a ruler, literally you, would, you could translate this, a ruler of the fourth part. So he ruled over a portion of his father's kingdom. Spurgeon said of this Herod that he was nowhere near the ruler that his father was. And Herod the Great had built many big buildings. Uh, he, had, he had built the, the temple. He had built uh, a place, uh, a fortress that we'll talk about in a second, and a lot of different things. And history tells us he was a short little guy who built a lot of big buildings. But he had a power trip, and he was constantly feeling threatened about his kingdom, and he always wanted to protect it. And in that environment, this Herod, Herod Jr., if you will, grew up. And you might say, you know, that's not a great start to start off in such a dysfunctional family. He was probably a teenager or a young adult when his dad did the dastardly deed in Bethlehem. And he grew up in an environment where he saw, you know, intrigue, immorality, brutality, you name it. Some of his siblings actually were killed by his own father. Talk about having daddy issues, right? And he grew up in all of this turmoil, and maybe for this particular Herod, just surviving his childhood would be worth celebrating. And now he's older, and he's got a portion of the, the area to rule, and he has now heard the news about Jesus. This is not surprising because this Herod ruled the Galilee area. Galilee and Perea is what he was over. And so Jesus did most of his ministry in northern Israel or the Galilee region. And so, you know, it's, it's not surprising that this particular Herod would hear about him. And news had reached Herod's ears about what was going on with Jesus. This particular Herod uh, was the son of Herod the Great by his fourth wife, Malphake. She was a Samaritan. He was the half-brother of Herod Philip, the son of his father's third wife, Mariamne. And Herod the Great was an Edomite by uh, stock, so he came from the line of Esau. He wasn't really Jewish, but he still would have grown up with a lot of biblical truth because of Jacob and Esau being brothers and that close connection. And so this is the environment in which he grows up. And, and we might say, oh, this, there's so many strikes against this guy. He's just bound to be a, a worldly king, right? Live for all the wrong things. But I want you to hold that thought and turn in your Bibles to Acts 13. We'll put it up on the screen for those of you who need it. But in Acts 13, we learn something about uh, connections or branches off of Herod and Herod's family. Acts 13, 1 and 2 reads this way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Now, there were at Antioch, Acts 13, 1, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, notice, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, Saul would become Paul for the work to which I have called them. For our purposes, I just want you to see this man, Menaean, in verse 1. He had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. 
Now, some scholars believe that he was an adopted brother into that family. Maybe he was a family friend. We don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic. But he grew up with this king that's at the center of our story. And he, Menaean, had become a devoted Christian. And in fact, he is a leader in the early church. And here's my point as you turn, turn to Luke 8, and I'll make one more point about Herod's family. No matter where you've grown up, no matter what influences have come from your family, whether there's been tragedy and dysfunction, you can trust the greater king. Amen? You don't have to let your past trap you into a future without God. And this is, this is what was going on. And what's also interesting is that in Luke 8, Luke uh, wrote the book of Acts as well as the gospel of Luke. We learn something else about a connection to the family of Herod in the life of Jesus. And just a side note, sometimes you wonder, you know, who was reporting the events of the dance of Salome and John the Baptist losing his head and all of this? How did they, they know all the details? Were there actually people in Herod's court who became committed followers of Jesus? Take a look at Luke 8, verse 3. It says, And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, or Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others were contributing uh, to their support out of their private means. They were supporting the ministry of Jesus, and one of them was Joanna, who also will appear at the tomb of Jesus in Luke 24, verse 10. And she was married to a guy named Cusa or Chusa, who was Herod's steward. He would have been over the finances of Herod the king. Interesting. And his wife was contributing to Jesus's ministry. And Chusa is an Italian uh, form of a name. It means you better choose the right thing. <laughs> that, you can write that down. Write that down in your notes. That's on solid authority. No, just kidding. That's, that's not but you got to choose the right thing anyway. All right, we're going to go to uh, Matthew 14. And this is the backdrop now. And so from 4 BC to 39 AD, Herod the Tetrarch rules the area of Galilee and Perea. He's selfish, he's weak, he's deceptive, and he is the ruler through Jesus's entire lifetime. His entire uh, later childhood, all the way up through Jesus's death and resurrection. This is the Herod that uh, wants to talk to Jesus, is excited to talk to him. And when Jesus finally appears before Herod, he's also known as Herod Antipas, Jesus doesn't say a word to him. He's so excited. I want to see this Jesus. I want him to do a miracle in front of me. And when Jesus finally appears before Herod the Tetrarch, Jesus won't say a word to him. He never hears his voice. And it's a reminder that we can get so hard-hearted and so, uh, you know, calloused in our hearts that the voice of God just kind of dissipates from our life. Now, this is Herod, and here's what's happening. So he had heard about Jesus, verse 2, Matthew 14, and he said to his servants, surely with a scary cry, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. And he's talking about Jesus. Now, this is what in our Bibles is known as a flashback. And we're not unfamiliar with this. We'd be watching a movie or a TV show, and it will say six months ago or three days ago, and it will show us events that tie the story together. We now have a flashback in our Bibles. John the Baptist has already been killed, 
But Matthew is going to show us how it happened, why it happened, and give us some of the details. But this is a flashback. It's already over. Herod has heard about Jesus doing miracles, and he thinks that John has come back from the dead. And so he says to his servants or those who are in his court, I know it. This is John the Baptist. This must be John. New living. John raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. And there's uh, other passages that talk about he kept saying it over and over and over again. This is John the Baptist risen from the dead. This is John the Baptist risen from the dead. You see, Herod thought he had gotten rid of the problem. But something else was going on in Herod, and that was his conscience was bothering him. And in the ancient world, they had a superstition, and it went like this. If a leader of a movement or someone famous was killed suddenly or executed, they thought that sometimes that person came back to haunt the the area or even the perpetrators of the crime. So he was living in fear of perhaps a ghost of John the Baptist or a resurrected John coming back to harass him or haunt his life. And when he heard about Jesus, his conscience got the best of him. And of course, Jesus was Jesus. He wasn't John risen from the dead, but this is what Herod thought. He's come back and he's gonna haunt me and perhaps he's gonna kill me in the night. And his conscience just ate him up and bothered him. A troubled conscience is an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, We are made in the image of God, and conscience is uh, two Latin words. Con means with, and science means knowledge. And God has, in some ways, written his law on us or in us, and we have a sense of morality. We have a sense of right and wrong. And even though this guy was a wicked king, and it was all about his power and kingdom, his conscience troubled him. And we'll see why he was troubled. In Mark 6, Mark adds a little bit more detail. 14 through 16, we'll put it up on the screen. King Herod heard of it. For his name, Jesus' name had become well known. People were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. It wasn't just Herod. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. And Herod was freaked out. He probably couldn't sleep at night. He he probably was struggling with all the implications of a decision that he had made in the past. Luke gives us a little bit more. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, Luke 9, 7, heard of all that was happening. He was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man? But who, about whom I hear such things. And he kept trying to see him. I think he wanted an audience with him to try to clarify, John, is that you? John, have you come back from my own personal demise? He wanted to clarify it. It troubled him. And it seems like the implication of the language is Herod just couldn't get over it. And he kept repeating it over and over and over again. When Herod heard Uh, excuse me, verse 3, Matthew 14, when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison. Now we're going to get the flashback. On account of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. Now, here's what happened with this particular relationship. Herod was married, and he was married, he had a political marriage to uh, a neighboring king's daughter, and he went over to his brother Philip's house so this would, Herodias would have been his sister-in-law. 
and he saw her, and she was beautiful, probably younger than him, and he was intoxicated by her beauty. And somehow he manipulated her to divorce uh, his brother Philip and marry him. Now, this is the stuff of daytime talk shows, isn't it? And what we also learn is that Herodias was the daughter of another brother who was killed by his dad. So this woman was his sister-in-law and his niece. And everybody say, call Jerry Springer right now or whoever the main talk show is now for this kind of stuff. Hollywood, eat your heart out. I remember... So some years back, this, this is quite a long time ago, I was waiting to get my hair cut, and one of those daytime shows was on, and it was all about the gossip, the latest gossip. And this lady's on, and she's digging up the dirt of all these people, and she said, oh, look what's happening over there, and look at so-and-so on the beach, Ugh. and look at this, and look at that relationship, and she's going through it. And then after she would do the, the dirt on all these people, the crowd would go, whoop, 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 whoop. And I'm sitting waiting to get my hair cut and thinking, this is crazy. Is this what people do? And every time another piece of dirt, whoop, whoop. So I remember it was a Wednesday night service and I was teaching through the Bible. So I mentioned it, it was fresh on my mind. And I said, yeah. And then they're doing this whoop, whoop thing. So this lady comes up to me and she says, Pastor Michael, I was so convicted by what you said tonight. And I said, why? She said, I watched that show. And I, I don't think I should be watching it anymore. And my response was, whoop, whoop. <laughs> Just kidding. I didn't do that. But anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, you know, we walk in the grocery line, and there's a whole industry of looking at the ugly stuff in other people's lives because maybe it makes us feel just a little bit better about us. Well, here's Herod, and he's stolen his brother's wife away, his sister-in-law, his niece, and people know about it, and people are talking, and maybe it's being reported in the, you know, the magazines of that sort and all of that. And so John the Baptist was a fiery preacher, and John confronted him, and this is the backstory of why John died. For John had been saying to him, to Herod, verse 4, it is not lawful for you to have her. New Living says, John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry her. A.T. Robertson asked the question, where are the John the Baptists in our day? You know, anymore, if you make an appeal to God's law about morality or marriage or things like this, you're pretty much tarred and feathered in the media world. But what was the law that John was appealing to? Not a man-made law. Marriage is God's idea. Early in the book of Genesis, God said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular, and the two shall be what? One flesh. In covenant. Exclusive. Marriage is not man's idea, it's God's idea. And brothers and sisters, and I think you all know this, marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's about Jesus' love for his bride, the church, and the fidelity that we share with him. So John confronted Herod. Now, I don't know if John had access to Herod. 
I don't know if he could go into the palace. You know, some of the old movies that you watch about this, Herod is passing by in a carriage with Herodias, his new so-called wife, illegal wife, and John the Baptist is somewhere on the streets and he calls out Herod. Herod! You know, screams at him. It's not lawful for you to have her. And they show Herodias and she's all frazzled. And she's got a grudge against this preacher because this preacher has called them both out. And the question that we got to wrestle with in our day and age is, is there any authoritative uh, ethic that we can appeal to when it comes to marriage and family? After all, Herod was not committed to the God of the Bible, but John the Baptist still used scripture because scripture is the ultimate law. And I will say this to you, that John the Baptist actually was doing Herod a favor because by calling Herod out, what do you think that John was trying to do? He wanted Herod to repent. Herod was the king of the Galilee region. When kings sin against God, what do they invite? Judgment on themselves and judgment on the area. I think John the Baptist was doing him a favor, and I would say this to you, as much as we have to be careful how we do things, if you have a friend that comes to you and challenges you on Scripture and says what you're doing is not biblical, you might want to give thanks for that friend because that friend may love you than anybody else because to not say something would not be a loving thing to do. And John had the courage to do it. One writer said, John was afraid of nothing except God. Herod was afraid of everything except God. And so John was not afraid to call the king out. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he was passing by on the street. I don't know if he somehow got an audience. Maybe he had a YouTube channel. You know, that's possible. What? I got a lot of laughs at that YouTube channel at first service. Um, anyway, never mind. I got a whoop for my wife in the front row. That was, that's the best it gets right there. It doesn't matter what you all do now. <laughs> the appeal to God's law is something that our culture is moving away from, moving away from any absolutes. Anymore, it's about how you feel and what your truth is. And when a culture moves that way, you can see the danger of it because then who determines truth anymore? Whose truth do we hang our hat on? Whose truth anchors our souls? Whose truth navigates a nation? These are deep questions that we have to ask, and a lot of, been, a lot of us have been asking them and praying uh, for our nation. And although he wanted to put him to death, Herod, Herod feared the multitude. You can see the fear that permeated his being because they regarded, the multitude regarded John as a prophet. Mark 6.20 puts it this way, Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe, safe, we'll see, from his own so-called wife. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Now think about this one. John the Baptist was everything that Herod was not, which intrigued him. But when John was in Herod's prison in a place called Machaerus, and it was, it was a high fortress, higher than Jerusalem, and he was down in a, John was down in a dungeon for about a year. Archaeologists have found this location, by the way, 
And they found places where in dank, low regions of a dungeon, prisoners were often chained to walls. That's where John the Baptist was. And remember, John, languishing in that prison, sent word through his disciples to Jesus in Matthew 11, are you the one or should we look for another? Remember, he had a moment of doubt. And then Jesus said to John's disciples, you go and tell John everything that's happening. The blind see, the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. And word went back to John. But John was having his doubts. But it would seem like fairly regularly as he was in prison, Herod would call for John and John would come and preach to Herod. Imagine the opportunities that Herod had to respond to truth. Imagine how many times John the Baptist shared scripture with him, shared with him about the Messiah, shared with him about the kingdom of God, about what he really needed to do with his life and destiny. He had the forerunner of the Messiah in his ear. And he was, he was a torn man. In some respects, he enjoyed listening to John, but he was also puzzled by John. And sometimes I think that's how people are with Christianity. People know deep down, man, maybe this is you today. Deep down, there's a sense that it's true, but it's perplexing. And I think that there's a lot of unbelievers that secretly have one Christian radio station on their presets. Huh? And they tune in that preacher. And sometimes they go, ah, come on, really? And other times they're like, ooh. That rings with truth. But what we do with truth, of course, is the ultimate issue. So here's Herod, and he's filled with fear. He's perplexed, but he protected John, uh, namely from his wife. John puzzled him, but he still protected him. And now the faithful night comes, verse 6, when Herod's birthday came. In the ancient world, the Jews would not uh, celebrate birthdays, but pagans did. There's nothing wrong with celebrating a birthday, but in the ancient world, they were debauched celebrations, especially for a man like this. They were similar to an ancient crude bachelor party. And what would happen is the king would invite all the mucky mucks, all the big wigs of that area, commanders and lords and generals, and they would have a party and the alcohol would begin to flow. And during that evening, there would be a dance by slave girls Slave girls would come in and they would do erotic dances, much like in our world today, where men will go to so-called establishments and watch women do this and alcohol flows and all the worst things that we can imagine. And some of us don't even have to imagine it because we've lived it and some of you are still dabbling in it. It can be a battle to break away from the flesh. When I became a Christian, I was uh, in my early 20s and I was coming away from very much a party lifestyle filled with compromise. I did everything opposite the way God would have you to do it. And I was a fairly new Christian, and I had all the same group of friends that I had, you know, in my teenage years. And one night there was a, a bachelor party of some sort, and I was with a group in Newport Beach, and they brought a girl in, and I don't have to give you the, the details. I think you can imagine why she was there. But I remember that a conviction came over me like I had not felt before as an unbeliever not walking with the Lord. The Holy Spirit was now living in me, and I was torn. All my buddies were there. I didn't want to be made fun of, etc. 
But I was there, and as things began to progress, I walked out, I left, and I was walking around Newport Beach without a ride home because I couldn't stay because I saw it through the heart of God. And that's the difference between seeing things through a worldly perspective like Herod the king and seeing things through the king's eyes. And so here's this party and the alcohol's flowing, but instead of the slave girls dancing, the daughter of Herodias, we're told by Josephus, her name was Salome, danced before them and pleased Herod. The idea was she did an erotic dance, and from the Greek word later to describe the girl, she's probably a young teenager, maybe 13 to 15 years old. And instead of the slave girls coming in, mom pushed her daughter to go in and do a sensual dance for Herod's drunken guests. And I just want to give you a side note just for a second, because we live in a culture where if we influence our kids towards that seductive dress and, you know, oh, you can flaunt it in front of people and that's encouraged by parents, that's just flat out wrong. But it happens. And we, ask, we have to ask the question about the influence that we're having on our kids. Is the culture influencing them more than us? And so she danced and it was crude, I'm sure, and erotic. And I'm sure by this time, Herod was pretty much drunk. A strategic day came, Mark 6, 21, 22. Finally, the opportune time came. And when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. See, Mama had a grudge against John the Baptist, and Mom knew the king's weaknesses. And maybe Mom had already seen the king eyeing her daughter. You know, after she got divorced and married to Herod, Mom and daughter moved into his palace. And maybe she noticed from time to time Herod peering at the young teenage daughter. And thought to herself, ah, I know I can, how I can set up my hubby. I'll just get her to dance. See, the, the power behind this whole situation was Herodias, the wife. And later, Jesus is told in the Gospel of Luke, Herod wants to kill you. Some Pharisees told Jesus, he wants to kill you. And Jesus responded, you go tell that fox. I think this is in Luke 13. Or the actual word is feminine. You go tell that vixen that I'm, I'm working. I'm doing my father's work. And there are scholars that believe that when he uses the feminine there, he's not talking to Herod. He's talking to Herodias, the real power behind the throne. A modern Jezebel, if you will. And so she has set this up, and there is Herod, and he is... The, the euphemism here is he is aroused. And in a drunken slur, Mark 6, 23, he said, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Blank check. Now, I don't know how much Herod had to give because he only ruled a portion of the kingdom and what he had to really give could be debated. But he made a promise in a moment and he did it with an oath. He swore to her with an oath 
I will give you up to half my kingdom. Verse 7, Matthew clarifies, Thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now this young girl could have said, I want land from this river to that river. I want piles of gold. She could have asked for anything. But prompted by her mom, she asked for the head of the greatest man ever born among women to that point. Prophesied in Malachi and Isaiah. And some of us have to be asking the question, how could God allow John, his forerunner, the one who would introduce Messiah to the world, to die in this sort of manner? How could that be? And something that God has built into the universe is what we call free will. And if you have the freedom to choose God, you have the freedom to not choose his way as well. And if a choice for good is a real choice, this is what C.S. Lewis said, if, if a choice for good is a real choice, then there must be a, a choice for evil. And with that comes victims of that evil. And in this case, one of the most righteous men that ever lived is beheaded at a drunken party at the behest of a mother and daughter who are about as wicked as we can imagine. And we say, why? Why, Lord, would you do that? But here's the other thing that happened. The moment that John died, where did he go? To be absent from the body, he was with the Lord. He was in paradise. He no longer had to languish under the threats of Herod's daily threat that he might kill him or Herodias's grudge or whatever else it meant to be chained in that dungeon. He was free. It finished his work indeed. He said in John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill your body. And after that, he has no power over you. Fear him who can kill your soul and cast it into the deepest part of Hades. Amen? I mean, this is a worldview, folks. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about what you're going to live for and what you're going to die for. John knew the risk, but he spoke the truth. And so here's the gruesome request. And although the king was grieved, verse 9, he commanded it to be given because of his oaths. He had made these hasty oaths, and he didn't want to look bad in front of his, his friends or his buddies. And because of his dinner guests, he let the pressure of a moment cause him to compromise. But as we see in this flashback, after John was dead, he was a troubled soul. Maybe this is John. Maybe John's come back from the dead. Is he going to haunt me? He was a troubled man. Instead of listening to the voice of truth married with his conscience, he tried to silence the messenger. And frankly, that happens a lot. Sometimes instead of listening to truth, it's easier to silence the messenger. And this has been the story of the Christian church for 2,000 years and prophets prior to the founding of the church, right? I know this is not easy stuff, but this is what's here. And so the question becomes, well, what do I do if I made a hasty decision, I made some sort of oath or under the pressure of peers, I capitulated. What if I tried to play both sides like Herod, 
try to keep everybody happy, everything propped up in my so-called kingdom. What do I do now? This is Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. How much more will the blood of Christ, Hebrews 9, 14 and 15, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. When you get saved, not only does Jesus forgive your sins, but he cleanses your conscience. Amen? Having a clean conscience is such a beautiful gift. Now, I still have regrets over decisions made prior to becoming a Christian, and I carry them to this day. But nothing that I've done in the past is unforgiven. My conscience is clean. Not because I've done everything right, but because I'm in a new covenant with Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life for me, shed his righteous blood for me, and rose from the dead. Amen? That's the good news we preach. So we can't forget, even in a story like this, where there's a lot of issues about decision-making and morality, that ultimately we lean into the righteousness of Christ. We need the gospel. We need him to make us clean. And so there's the king, and he gives the order, and he's grieved. Why is he grieved? He could have been grieved over his sin. He could have been grieved over the fact that he was tricked. But did he stop it? Did he say, time out, hold on. I'm not, we're not doing this. That guy's a righteous man. Hold on, put on the brakes. And would to God that we would do that a little bit more often, right? Before we're about to do something silly. <laughs> but he didn't. He let it continue to fester. And the opportunity passed him by. One writer put it this way. He said, off with John's head and on with my sin. He didn't stop it. And so he sent and he had John beheaded in, in the prison. And even though it was by proxy, an executioner went and did it. He was still responsible. And John's head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. That's where we get the idea that she's a young teenager. And she brought it to her mother. Look, mommy, aren't you proud of me? How sad. And there's more that could be said about that moment, but in that moment, I wonder what the girl was feeling. I wonder what the mother was thinking as the lifeless prophet stared back, if you will. But there it was. And sometimes we think, oh, if I can just, you know, get rid of that, I, I don't have to listen to that. But the truth is that God's word continues to to do its work, it's sharp. She went out and she said to her mother, Mark 6, 24 through 28, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist, mama was behind it. And immediately she came in haste before the king asked, saying, I want you to give me right away, no delay, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the, the king was sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head, and he went and had him beheaded in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. What a sad, sad situation. And Herod 
you know, if, if the camera turns to Herod right now, I think Herod is numb. I think layers of regret permeate his soul, but it's done. And, and of course, the, the lesson to us is if you're ever feeling like you're in a position where you're being squeezed or pressured, just think again. Because there's always a way of escape. Now, here's what happened to Herod, just in case you were curious. Herod, he feared another attack by Aretas. That was the king that he, he divorced his daughter to get this other woman. Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, reported he feared a rebellion by his own people, inspired by and perhaps even led by John the Baptist. That was his fear. And Herod feared the emperor might replace him with someone more in favor with Rome. That fear was well-grounded. Because some years after this, his jealous and scheming nephew, Agrippa, the brother of Herodias, convinced the emperor Caligula that Herod was planning a rebellion against Rome. Herod lost prestige and power. His armies were defeated by the Arabs, and his appeals to be made king, urged by his wife, were refused by the emperor. Perhaps because Caligula did not fully trust Agrippa's word, he had Herod and Herodias banished to Gaul, modern France, rather than being executed. And there they languished in their life. They uh, were under really the penalty of treason. And in Spain, Herod, the Tetrarch, passed away. And, and we have the moment because it's captured in the Bible, but Herod's life came to nothing. Because in that world, when you live by the sword, you die by the sword. In that world where everybody's stabbing each other in the back, there's no honor among thieves. And Herod had another brother, you know, basically do to him what he did to somebody else. And the disciples came, were winding down, and took away the body. I want you to notice the Holy Spirit doesn't say they took away John. It says they took away the body because that was only John's body. John had gone to his reward, and they buried it, the body, and they went and reported to King Jesus. Now, we're going to see the contrast of the greater king here at the end. But I want you just to I want to take a moment just to encourage you. If you've lost a loved one and their body has been buried or perhaps cremated and they have believed in Jesus Christ, you haven't lost them. Because the Bible does teach that we at one point end up absent from our body. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, but home with the Lord. And John is waiting a resurrection body just like we all will be, and that will come when Jesus Christ returns on that last day. And so they did what I think would be the only option. They took it to Jesus, and that's what we got to do when we're going through tough times. They took it to Jesus, and they shared it with him. And when Jesus heard it, he withdrew there in, from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself, probably to grieve and probably also to get away from a potential threat from Herod. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, here's the prince of life. He hears that his cousin has been beheaded. He tries to get a little alone time to grieve, and the crowds find the king. And if I were him, I'd say something like this. Come on, people! Can't you give me a little bit of space? I'm grieving here. But that's not what Jesus does. See, Jesus is the contrast to King Herod because he went ashore and he saw the great multitude. And what's your Bible say? And he felt compassion for them. 
and healed their sick. Herod lived for everything in his little kingdom. Jesus, the king, lived for the kingdom of God. And he made a huge impact that has obviously changed the entire trajectory of the world. And we are called to follow him. Amen? Father, thank you for this time in your word. This is a sobering account, but it's filled with many marvelous applications. This is history, Lord, so we've relived a little bit of history, but it's over, and we know that John is with you, and Jesus, we know that you've risen from the dead, and you're at the right hand of the Father interceding for your people. We have great hope in the new covenant, and as we reflect a little bit on this account, I know that there's a good amount of application we can make, and I pray that you would lead your saints into the right response. Whatever's been from me that's not helpful, help them forget it quickly. Whatever's going to have eternal kingdom value, let them think about it, have a Selah moment, and think about the contrast and the kingdom that they live for. Thank you that we can come to the communion table right now. We're going to have the ushers start moving forward. And Lord, as we come to your table, we're going to remember what the king did for us, that you died for us, you entered into our pain, you took the horrible death of the cross, you rose from the dead to defeat our mortal enemy. You lived the perfect life for us that we can never live. You impart righteousness through the gospel. You impart eternal life. You're the giver of life, and you're the great king of kings and lord of lords. And Lord, as we um, come to your table now to conclude this time together, I pray that you would minister to every heart, draw us close to you, help us to reflect on what you did for us to get us into the kingdom, and help us to also look forward to a day when you're coming again. I pray for all the precious people that are hearing my voice right now that they would hear your voice above all other and that they would respond in a way that glorifies you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.